0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. And neither of them would live to see the age of 26. Their West Coast, East Coast rap feud helped sell millions of records. Helped launch the career of Puff Daddy. Cemented Death Row Records as one of the greatest hip-hop labels of all time. I listened to a ton of Tupac growing up. I listened to a ton of Tupac this week. And who hasn't heard some Biggie? But how much do we really know about either man? Well, after today's episode, you'll know a lot. Biggie, 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 can't you see that we've got a lot to learn about you and Tupac's history today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. the Master Sucker, the fourth leg of Bojangles. And this is Time Suck. Welcome to the cult of the curious, recording from the suck lair. Josh Krell, monitoring the sound waves, making sure they go into your brain just right. Space Lizards, the app has been updated. Hail Nimrod, new update that fixes pretty much everything. Up now on both Google Play and the Apple App Stores. The suck has been freed. So happy. That makes me so happy. Uh, Thank you, BitElixir. It's working great on both my Android and on my iPhone. I love it. Uh, thanks to all the uh, space lizards who made the trek to Coeur Lane for the first Space Lizard Elite events. Uh, just the other day, this past Saturday, I- I'm recording the suck. Uh, full disclosure: before our little get together, I'm going to assume we had a great time. Uh, I'll be I'll be posting a lot of pics to confirm that on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Timesuck Podcast. Uh, back on tour this week. Stand-up shows in Minneapolis, March 2nd and 3rd at Sisyphus Brewing. Both the early shows are now sold out. Some tickets still available for the 10 p.m. shows. Brea Improv, SoCal, March 8th through the 11th. Hilarities in Cleveland, Ohio, March 22nd through 24th. Salt Lake City, April 20th through 21st. San Francisco tickets uh, just went on sale. And uh, more tour dates, including those San Francisco dates, uh, at dancummins.tv, Big Southern Tour, uh, early April San Antonio now on the schedule for for uh, for April just added that uh, at the end of the uh, Houston and little Dallas run there and now time for time suck 76 Tupac and biggie fame money and murder all right you guys ready for a, a giant timeline today a big one Kind of a dueling timeline really Tupac and Biggie were just barely a year apart in age and they died within six months of each other. So it makes sense to bounce back and forth between their childhoods and their ascent to hip-hop superstardom in a little dueling timeline. So let's get it started. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. June 16, 1971, Tupac Shakur, is born in East Harlem, New York City. He was born Richard William Jr., but changed it later because a record label exec told him that no one was going to buy a hip hop album from a dude named Dick Willie Jr. Uh, no, no, he was uh, he was born uh, Lassane Parish Crooks, but 1972, which is an odd name. Uh, uh, <laughs> when he was just barely a year old, his mom renamed him after Tupac uh, Amaru the Second, an 18th century Peruvian revolutionary. Uh, who was executed after leading an indigenous uprising against Spanish rule. And since dad didn't stick around, she didn't feel like it was fair to have him take dad's last name. And i got to say, I agree with that logic. Uh, You know your mom is a wee bit more intense than than other moms when she names you after a Peruvian revolutionary, uh, even though you are not even like 1% Peruvian. Uh, well, uh, Afina Shakur Davis, she was more intense than your average mom. She wasn't a homemaker. She didn't have a white-collar job. She didn't work as a checker at Safeway. She was a high-ranking member of the Black Panther Revolutionary Political Movement. Both of Tupac's parents were Black Panthers, actually. Uh, Afini, born Alice Faye Williams, met Tupac's father, Billy Garland, while working for the Black Panther Party. Apparently it was just a brief little fling, a little brief romance— uh, not a lot of details available about it, but but I am certain uh, it involves a penis inside a vagina and an overly relaxed attitude towards birth control. Uh, Feeney specialized in raising bill money from jailed Panthers, which was an important organizational role. Considering the Black Panthers were constantly getting arrested, law enforcement hated them. Mostly because they openly hated law enforcement. Uh, Alfini, uh, excuse me, Alfini. Alfini operated alongside prominent Black Panther member Geronimo Pratt, who would later be named Tupac's godfather. Now, Geronimo was born Elmer Pratt. Not joking about that one. Uh, hard to be taken seriously as a revolutionary when your name is Elmer, as in Fudd. You know, And Elmer Fudd, not exactly a revolutionary. You know, he was he was more of a wabbit hunter. Killed a wabbit killed a wabbit killed a wabbit killed a web. <laughs> whatever that thing was. Elmer uh, renamed himself after the famous Apache warrior, and he go to prison in 1972 for a murder charge that would later be vacated in 97 because the prosecution uh, upheld key evidence from the jury, such as the fact that their key witness was an FBI informant. Whoops. Uh, Pratt claimed to be uh, 350 miles away from Santa Monica when the murder occurred. And uh, 25 years, man, on a bullshit murder charge. God, after getting out, he left the country, moved to the East African nation of uh, Tanzania, and I don't blame him. And why was he charged in the first place? Well, probably because he was a member of the Black Panther Party, an organization formed in response to numerous acts of police brutality. In 1969, Afini and 20 other members of the party were jailed while facing trial on some trumped-up charges of planning a series of bombings in New York City. Uh, Shakur was pregnant with Tupac at the time. Tupac would later tell a reporter, I was cultivated in prison. My embryo was in prison. After reading Fidel Castro's Castro's history will absolve me while incarcerated, Shakur chose to represent herself in court, telling other accused Panthers that if they were convicted, they were going to be the ones serving jail time, right? Not the lawyers. Pregnant while on trial and facing a 30-year prison sentence, uh, Shakur interviewed witnesses and passionately argued in court, and she won. She and other members of the Panther 21 group were acquitted after an eight-month trial released from prison in May 1971. The following month, she gave birth to a Lassane, and then she changed his name to Tupac. She'd later say, I wanted him to have the name of a revolutionary indigenous people uh, in the world. uh, Name of, excuse me, revolutionary indigenous people in the world. I wanted him to know he was part of a world culture and not just from a neighborhood. Uh, That's pretty cool, actually. Uh, Again, not your typical mom. Not going to be a typical childhood when that's your origin. Uh, A little more about the Black Panthers before we move into Tupac's childhood. Like, who were they? Well, the Black Panthers, who deserve their own suck, truly, uh, and I will get to them, I'm sure, someday, kicked off uh, in October of 1966 in Oakland, California. Uh, And apparently, they have nothing to do with the new Black Panther movie, even though the comic book character that the black movie is based on uh, also debuted in 1966. The party was formed in October. The comic came out in July. Uh, Weird, coincidental timing, I guess. Uh, the Black Panther character also was the first mainstream African American comic superhero, but you know, I mean, I, I kind of wonder if the party took their name from the comic. Uh, supposedly not, but again, that's a very strange coincidence. There's also a possibility that the Black Panther party took their name from Pootie and Juju, uh, issue number 58. Pootie gets a Black Panther and names it Hootie, uh, which is how the band Hootie and the Blowfish uh, got got their name. Uh, that issue of Pootie and Juju came out in August of 1966. Uh, Pootie gets a Black Panther, and then Juju freaks out because A, it's illegal to have a Black Panther for a pet. B, Juju, highly allergic to cats. And uh, C, uh, Pootie told Juju that he got Hooty for a really good price because Hooty had eaten her two previous owners. So that, you know, understandably uh, made Juju nervous. Well, luckily for Pootie and Juju fans, Hooty did not eat either of them in that episode. But she did eat Juju's pet goldfish, Muffin Top. And <laughs> when Juju came home to find a Black Panther with a wet face and a missing goldfish, uh, he'd had enough. And he's, no more hooty, Pooty, he screamed. But it was hard to understand him because his face was swelling up due to his cat al- allergies. So it's more like, all right, oh, hooty, hooty. And Pooty was like, what? No more pooty tooties? And Juju just screamed, no more hooty, Pooty. More of like, all right, hey. And Pooty heard him that time. And it was like, what if we just keep him in the yard? Then your face probably won't swell up as much. And then Juju screamed, Toot little, toot Daniel Pooty. And they argued back and forth, uh, just exactly like that. They went back and forth for 235 consecutive pages, and and by the time they were finally done arguing, uh, Hootie the Black Panther had actually died of old age, and and, and many of their readers had stopped uh, just you know following them. Uh, it, was, it wasn't one of their more popular issues. You know, the publisher realized that was uh, way too long for an argument. And, and I hope new listeners realize by now that I am joking about uh, Pootie and Juju. They have a lot to do with Time Suck, but nothing uh, to do with uh, either uh, Tupac or, or Biggie or the or – they also have nothing to do with the Black Panthers. Anyway. The organization, the Black Panthers, founded in the wake of the assassination of black nationalist Malcolm X in 1965 and after police in San Francisco shot and killed an unarmed black teen named Matthew Johnson in September of 66. The Black Panther uh, Party's initial reason for existence, you know, was uh, to form and organize armed citizens patrols that would monitor the behavior of the Oakland Police Department. As I said, man, they were formed in response to continual police brutality against African-Americans in the 60s. And as organizations typically do, they evolved. In '69, community social programs became another core activity of party members. The Black Panther Party instituted a variety of community social programs, most extensively the Free Breakfast for Children program, uh, and they provided community health clinics to address issues like food injustice. Uh, they were nationwide, but they had their largest presence in Oakland, San Francisco kind of Bay Area, New York, Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, Seattle, Philadelphia, and uh, Riggins, Idaho. Uh, of course kidding about the last one there was, there was not a large Black Panther movement in Riggins, Idaho uh, This is the culture Tupac was born into Son of Black Panthers No wonder, uh, you know the lyrics of so many of his songs Would be so insightful, so intense No wonder he emphasized kind of, you know Social injustice and rising up against the powers that be And it was a harsh beginning uh, for Tupac Afeni's life was so chaotic during his early years The Black Panther Party was dying But it still had active groups that held meetings and rallies That Afeni often attended Carrying Tupac with her Family friend and later publicist for Tupac, Karen Lee, uh, would say, I met Tupac for the first time at the Armory in New York City on 168th Street. I'd gone over to hear Minister Louis Farrakhan speak at a rally, and Afeni was there with him. He was a tiny baby, about two months old. Uh, shortly after Tupac's birth, Afeni was a free woman, but also she was an unskilled high school dropout, and she had a hard time finding work. And That difficulty you know, was compounded by her being an ex-Panther, once accused of conspiracy to bomb uh, New York landmarks, uh, that is that is not great to have on your resume when you're trying to get jobs in New York City. I'm I'm sorry. What was the last thing you just said? Uh, you 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 uh, went on trial for bombing a lot of businesses uh, here in New York. Yeah, we're gonna pass. It's gonna be a hard pass. Uh, immediately following her release, you know, uh, she initially got work accepting invitations to speak at like colleges and universities such as Harvard. But then when black radicalism stopped being chic among the white upper class, uh, which happened pretty quick after she was released, her audiences vanished and then so did her income. Uh, And she was also, you know, more into the Black Panther movement than she was into being a dependable mom or provider. So that wasn't good for Pac. As an infant, Tupac crashed in the apartments of random rally attendees, on the couches of relatives, or uh, often in homeless shelters. Tupac recalled that they moved from Manhattan to the Bronx and back at least 18 times uh, from the time he was born until he was 10 years old. A, that's a lot of moving. Tupac, Tupac said that each time I had to reinvent myself. People think just because you're born in the ghetto, you're going to fit in. A little twist in your life and you don't fit in no matter what. I felt like my life could be destroyed at any moment. Uh, such a lifestyle uh, had profound effects on young Tupac, you know, uh, risking equally profound consequences. He said, I was crying all the time. He later told the interviewer, my major thing was I couldn't fit in because I was from everywhere. I didn't have any buddies that I grew up with. Well, Afeni eventually found employment at a nonprofit organization that provided free legal services to the poor. And by the time Tupac started kindergarten, Afeni had married a man named Mutulu Shakur, no relation to her first husband, and had another child, a girl she named Shikiwa, uh, who'd go by Sek. And, uh, okay, so now that's, uh, let's, give it, let's go a over to the B.I.G. now. All right, uh May 21st, 1972, less than a year after the birth of Tupac, another future hip-hop star is born in New York City, the notorious BIG born Dilbert von wrinklesquirt Junior Esquire. Uh of course not. That's a that's a horrible name for a future hip-hop star or or anyone. That's a horrible name for any human. If you're uh Dilbert if, I apologize if your name does happen to be Dilbert von Rinklesquirt, and I highly recommend you, that you change your name. That's terrible. Christopher George Latour Wallace was born May twenty first, 1972. In Brooklyn, his parents both hailed from the Caribbean island of Jamaica. His mom, Valletta, ran a jerk chicken stand. And his father ran a competing jerk chicken stand. Uh, no, Valletta actually taught preschool. And his pop, Selwyn, was a welder and local Jamaican politician. Sorry, uh, jerk chicken is is about the only thing I really know about Jamaica. You're going to have to suck on some, some Jamaica stuff down the road. Uh, His father, in addition to having a job as a welder, also had a whole other family back in London, England, and abandoned Biggie to return to them before Biggie was two, so that is unfortunate. Dads not sticking around. Too much of that in this story. Too much of that in general in society. Both Tupac and Biggie's dads don't hang around, and they were both the firstborn. While Tupac uh, would have a sister, Chris would uh, remain an only child. Unlike Tupac, young Biggie was well cared for by his mother. She'd say, I made sure my son had education, a good mattress, clean sheets, good quality clothes. I gave him quality time. Uh, his mom, he come from a nice middle-class family in Jamaica. She could have stayed in Jamaica, had a nice middle-class life, but she didn't want it. She wanted to explore the world, so she set off for New York on her own at the age of 17. Now, while Chris may have had a positive maternal figure in his life, she didn't live in a good positive neighborhood. Uh, she had a small apartment in between the Clint Hill and Bedford-Stuyvesant uh, neighborhoods of Brooklyn, Heroin and crack were sold on street corners. The family heard gunshots and police sirens way too often at night. And Christopher fell into a bad crowd early on. Uh, but because he was so intelligent and sneaky, so polite and well-spoken, when he needed to be, his mom never saw it. He sounds, uh, you know, a lot like uh, me, honestly, as a kid. I was a, I was a sneaky little bastard myself. right? Uh, my, my, my parents had no idea I was doing anything. Best way to get away with criminal activity is to get good grades and not cause trouble in school. Which is not good life advice, by the way, young suckers. I did that, but I was very lucky not to get caught and uh, derail my life. Uh, While raising Chris, Valletta went back to school, graduating with a teaching degree from Brooklyn College, and then immediately getting a job at a jerk chicken shack. I mean school. Uh, She worked at a grade school. Uh, She was a grade school teacher. Uh, Chris began attending nursery school at two years and five months of age, and he could could write his name by three, and he could make some bomb-ass jerk chicken by two. I'm gonna stop with the jerk chicken now. Uh, he went to a Catholic grade school, middle school, uh, Queen of All Saints. He excelled. He also spent a few months of every summer back with his mom's family in Jamaica. Did that till he was 16. His uncle there uh, worked as a DJ in reggae clubs. Do you have any idea how hard it was for me to not say jerk chicken stand again? I wanted to say it so badly. I wanted to say he was a DJ in a jerk chicken shack instead of, <laughs> instead of reggae club. And I guess I kind of did. I, I just had to get that thought out of my head. Through grade school, Chris's house was a place to be. He had an Atari. And television and a ColecoVision. I didn't even fucking know about ColecoVisions. I only had an Atari. Uh, unlike Tupac, Chris's early years were, weren't as impoverished as he claimed them to be. He, he'd exaggerate kind of his you know uh, his, his early poverty to get some street cred later. Uh, very very similar to how O'Shea Jackson, aka Ice Cube, uh, would later do with N.W.A. Ice Cube did grow up in South Central L.A., but he grew up in a middle class household. He never never gangbanged. Uh, was never arrested. Uh, Chris grew up, uh, without a dad, seeing his father rarely after the age of two, seeing him for the last time in 1978, the age of six. His mom, uh, you know, tried to make up for it by spoiling him, uh, buying him everything he wanted when she could afford it, you know, Timberlands, Tommy Hilfiger, whatever he wanted to wear. Chris showed artistic abilities as a young kid. Valletta remembered him being able to look at a picture in a magazine and then being able to sketch an exact replica freehand. At age 10... Uh, young Chris fell off a city bus and broke his right leg in three places, uh, which would turn out to be a huge break for the family. His mom sued the New York, uh, city, city of New York, and settled for a five-figure sum, and then laying around the house for six months, Chris, already a husky kid, began to put on some serious weight, put on pounds that stuck around long after his leg healed. All right, back to Pac, 1981. When Tupac is 10, his stepfather, Matulu, becomes a fugitive from justice. It was around this time that a a minister asked Tupac what he wanted to be when he grew up, and he would say revolutionary. Uh, Well, Matulu considered himself a revolutionary. He was a part of an organization known as the Weather Underground, a group that had formed in 1968 in response to the failure of anti-war and civil rights movements to fully and effectively end the Vietnam War, eliminate racism, and implement a vast range of reforms for social justice. Now, their name was taken from Bob Dylan's subterranean homesick blues song. You know, uh, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Uh, I don't know the melody because I refuse to listen to any more Bob Dylan because his voice is like fucking tiny tacks being nailed into my face. I get that he's a fantastic lyricist. Uh, If I died and found out that hell was real and I was down there, uh, somebody who sounds like Bob Dylan would be constantly serenading me. (laughs) Anyway, the Weather Underground bombed targets across the United States throughout the 70s, selecting places they deemed emblematic of strife and violence around the world. uh, They wanted to get the attention of the authorities and had accomplished that objective earlier in the decade when a group of them accidentally blew up three of their own members, along with a townhouse on 11th Street in New York's Greenwich Village. Tupac's stepdad made the FBI's most wanted list as a member of this group. According to government prosecutors, Matulu and the family began robbing banks and then armored cars by the summer of 1980. They supposedly had amassed more than $900,000. The cash was going to be used to finance a revolution. The perpetrators intended to transform the states of Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina into a territory inhabited only by black people. So, uh, slightly ambitious plan. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how they kept talking themselves into thinking that was going to work. Right they you yeah I mean, that's great that you got nine hundred thousand dollars, but the US government, a uh, little bit more than that in their reserves, a little bit more of an army. It's like, all right guys, we got a million dollars now let's let's take five states. <laughs> let's take five states and make them our own country. Oh, what people will fucking delude themselves into thinking is possible. Uh, on the run from the law, Matulu uh, was out of Tupac's early life, surrounded by constant turmoil. Tupac withdrew. He'd later say, when I was young, I was quiet, withdrawn, I read a lot, I wrote poetry, I kept a diary. Uh, poetry skills, not particularly valued in his family, among his, his mom's revolutionary compatriots, certainly not valued in the tough ghetto neighborhoods where he lived. It frustrated him that he didn't feel hard, like the folks around him as a kid. Uh, pretty funny for a guy who would get a nationwide reputation for being super hard like a, like a hard gangster type later in life uh, Tupac's next daddy figure uh, was a gangster who once worked for the infamous drug dealer Nikki Barnes Afeni's new boyfriend went by the name of Legs that's when that's how you know you got a solid boyfriend when they go by the name of Legs I'm sorry who who's your new boy <laughs> fucking if, if my daughter Someday brought home a dude who went by fucking Legs. I, I, I hope in my fantasy part of my brain, I am, I don't hear anything else. I immediately just walk across the room. I fucking grab him by his, you know, uh, shirt. I just fucking lift him up, walk him to the front door, and literally throw his ass out into the yard. Just get the fuck out of here, Legs. Never come back. Don't you ever come back! Uh, yeah, Legs. And Tupac became very attached to Legs. Uh, it was Legs who introduced Afeni to crack cocaine. See, that's what I'm fucking talking about! You invite some guy named Legs in your house, and then you're smoking crack a second later. Uh, she would say, that was our way of socializing. He would come home. <laughs> this is a quote. He would come home and stick a pipe in my mouth. Oh, wow. Shit, man. Turns out I've been socializing wrong my whole life. I, see, I thought socializing involved like small talk, maybe a few cocktails, catching up on the day with somebody. Uh, I didn't realize that when you wanted to socialize with somebody, you were supposed to literally stick a crack pipe in their mouth. I guess that would make socializing so much more exciting and <laughs> unpredictable. Are you going to end up talking about your day still? Are, are you, uh, you going to have a few drinks still? Are you gonna, or are you going to rob a liquor store? Are you going to suck a stranger's dick for more crack? Who, who knows? It can go so many ways. In 1983, uh, 12-year-old Tupac, who wasn't into sports and had no interest in being some tough, thug-type kid... Uh, He was sweet and artistic as a a young man, actually. Enrolled and was chosen for the role of Travis in a community production of Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun. And he loved it. Uh, He'd say, my first acting job was at the Apollo Theater when Jesse Jackson was running for president. It was a fundraiser. When the curtain went up, I just caught that bug. After all his bouncing around, he found something he was really good at. Something, you know, he could receive positive attention for doing. And then old stepdaddy Legs went to jail for credit card fraud. Of course he did. Legs always goes to jail. You start calling yourself Legs, fucking prison's in your future. I, I promise. Another father figure gone from Pac's life, unable to pay the rent. Once again, Afeni, Tupac, seek or Sek, uh, moved in with Gloria and her family. Then Afeni packed up her children left New York City for good. Next stop, Baltimore, Maryland. And Tupac's childhood in Baltimore would later inspire The, uh, the Wire. The Wire is based on Tupac's childhood, one of the best shows in HBO history. And that's uh, that's not true, actually, the Tupac part. The, it is one of the best shows. It's phenomenal, but it has nothing to do with Tupac. Uh, 1984, Afini, 13-year-old Tupac, you know, sec, They moved to Baltimore. Afini tries to make a good life for herself and her kids. She, she's on welfare, but she's also signed up for free computer classes. You know, she's spending her free time making sure her kids are doing well in school when they first get there. And then shortly after they arrive from New York, Afini learns that Legs, uh, although released from jail, has died from a crack-induced heart attack. Of course he has! I guarantee you, you, fucking get everybody start calling you legs. You got a crack heart attack in your future. Uh, that hurt Tupac. Afeni remembered it was three months before he cried, and when he did, he said, "I miss my daddy." Uh, man, tough. What a tough childhood. That's it. when you're crying over daddy legs. Uh, that is not a good childhood. Afeni enrolled Tupac in Roland Park Middle School, and check out this description of Tupac from a former classmate around this time. Very different from the Tupac we would all come to know. On his on his first day in mid-November, he walked into homeroom late. He wore baggy pants of thin blue fabric, like surgical scrubs, with staples encircling the bottom of each leg along the hem. The pants hung loosely from his skinny frame below a generic long sleeve shirt tucked in the waist, uh, tucked at the waist where a drawstring held a ragtag or held the ragtag ensemble in place. His hair was lopsided, like some two-tiered wannabe Bobby Brown cut. That <laughs> that alone puts such a picture in my brain. And he, and he exposed poorly kept unfinished braces along both rows of teeth with every parting of his lips. Only the metal anchors were in place on each tooth. There was no wires connecting them. <laughs> that is the worst. That is terrible. What an image. When you just had the little metal anchors still in your teeth, that's when you know you're super poor. Like when your family can't afford to have to have one more appointment just to get those things off. So they're, they're doing no good. They're not moving your teeth around at all. You just have like little – metal it's, it's like the shittiest grill like this like the like the like an early grill like the worst one ever oh so he's an object of ridicule for 2 years uh he attended Roland Park of course he was you're going to i guarantee you if you put your kid in a school and they have the metal anchors on their teeth but nothing attaching them like braces are supposed to that's how you that's how you guarantee your kid is an object ob, uh, object of ridicule but he does do well in school uh he does do well in school he enjoys learning he enjoys being there uh Christopher Wallace around this time uh, getting substantially less interested in school. By 1985, thirteen-year-old future notorious B.I.G. Christopher Wallace is nearly six feet tall and thick. He had the build for football, but didn't want to play. Didn't want to really commit to anything school-related. He was becoming disillusioned with school and uh, kind of you know traditional careers possibilities. Uh, he left Catholic school behind, a school that that had once graduated New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Uh, he left that for Westington, Westinghouse High School whose alumni includes uh, other hip-hop you know, uh, stars, DMX, Jay-Z, Busta Rhymes. It's pretty cool. Uh, pretty cool that so many hip-hop giants went to that same high school. Uh, not sure how many hip-hop le- legends went to my high school. Uh, Salmon River High in Riggins, Idaho has, if I remember correctly, uh, I think zero uh, future hip-hop stars that went there. Uh, not positive, but I'm pretty sure it's zero. And you can just replace hip hop with almost any other word, and have that still work. Like, how many future uh, business stars came from Riggins? Uh, zero. <laughs> how many? How many future just musicians of any kind? Uh, zero. How many doctors? Zero. Lawyers? Zero. I don't know if that's true, actually, but it feels like it. 1996. Chris became a smartass with teachers. Grew restless. 1986, he heard about how much money was being made selling crack on a 48 hours TV special with Dan Rather. Realized other kids around his age, 13, 14, weren't asking their mom for ice cream money anymore. They were making some bank selling that rock cocaine. Uh, That is hilarious to me, man. Biggie getting the idea to sell crack from Dan Rather. (laughs) It reminds me of the start of Breaking Bad when Walter White watches a news clip of his brother-in-law Hank making a meth bust. And uh, yeah the first episode in the pilot and he sees uh, a whole bunch of cash piled up on the table and he's like how much money is that Hank? And Hank says uh, it's about 700 grand and the idea to make meth is born. Like who hasn't thought uh, for a second about making fast money, illegal or not? Oh man, I had I had crazy uh, illegal fantasies growing up, you know? I was going to I don't know, rob so- something and make a bunch of cash or, you know? I I had drug dealing Fantasies. I mean, I didn't act on it in any way, but I was like, oh, man, that'd be so great just to make all that cash. Uh, Chris had previously thought about becoming a commercial artist uh, in art school. The Pratt Institute was right down the street, and commercial artists lived in his neighborhood, but why struggle as an artist for years when you can make good money selling crack right now? And that is literally the first thing I think when I wake up each morning. Why am I trying to write jokes? Why am I killing myself researching every week? When I can be making good money right now... Sell me some crack. Like how many crack dealers could be in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho right now? I'm guessing maybe zero. There could possibly be no crack being sold in Coeur d'Alene right now. I haven't noticed a single crack dealer hanging around the suck dungeon. I could I could own the entire crack market. I could go on the dark web and give me some bitcoins, order me some big old box of crack, all the extra large box of crack, please, and then just get to work. I might do that tomorrow. I'm going to fucking Amazon me some crack over here. And start so when you guys come by the suck dungeon, safe, you know, come check out a podcast and buy some fucking crack. Buy buy me some crack! Buy some of my crack! I wanted to go high there for some reason. Uh Chris, come buy my crack! The guy who just he's so irritated that you're not buying his crack. Just walk up and buy my crack! Uh Chris's mom, Valetta, would later say that Chris was a good kid up until the age of 13. And then at 13, he transitioned from Christopher to notorious. At first, Chris hid his, uh, Chris hid his new crack dealer life from his mom. He'd wear the clothes she bought him when she was home. Uh, he'd hide the much more expensive clothes and jewelry he bought with the crack money on the, on the roof. He'd change on the, on the roof, and then he'd come down the side of the building and go to school. And then when he come home, he'd go up the side of the building on the roof, change back into his mom's clothes, and then come back in the house. Uh, that's something, there's something so cute and tragic about that, right? Like he's enough of, adult, of, or of an adult to make money selling crack, but still enough of a kid to worry about his mom catching him selling crack. Uh, at school, the former honor roll student began uh, missing more and more classes, more and more truancy letters, started showing up at his home his sophomore year. His mom begged him to stay in school, but it was just too much money to be made selling crack. Just come on by crack! Come get by crack! Uh, he'd later say he was making $1,200, 1300 a day selling crack as a teen. By 16, he'd drop out of school altogether, sell crack full-time. Uh, but he'd also—I st- wonder if he put that on a resume. Like, from, like, you know, like, uh, 83 to 84, I was part-time crack dealer. Full-time uh, crack supervisor uh, from 85 to 87. Uh, but, yeah, so by, by 16, he dropped out of school altogether. Still a full-time, but he would still live at home for a while. So, again, cute and sad. Ready to be a full-time crack dealer, not ready to leave. Mama. But what about Pac? What's Pac up to in the mid-'80s? Back in 1985, Tupac started sucking dick for crack for two months. Full years, 85 to 87, he would do nothing but suck dick for crack. Uh, No, sorry. Whenever I hear about crack, I think about stories of people hitting rock bottom, selling everything they have, and eventually sucking dick to get a little more crack. Uh, By the way, once I start selling crack, you don't get to suck my dick for crack. All right? I think I can talk my wife into letting me sell crack. I can't talk her into letting people suck my dick for crack. So just I want to be clear on that. You want to come by the Suck Dungeon, you want to come get my crack. You want to come by grab some Crack, I'll sell it to you. But stay away from my dick. No, 85, Tupac starts attending Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School in Baltimore. He auditions for the Baltimore School for the Arts. Lands a spot at uh, at that much sought-after institution. He said, The high school I went to was mostly for white kids and rich minorities. He'd be a drama major, and he found himself immersed in uh, in a strong academic program and a broad range of arts instruction, which included voice and ballet. Uh, That's pretty cool. Tupac's uh, attending the Baltimore School for the Arts, harnessed his creative talent, giving him an outlet for his expression. For his creative expression and focus his desires for the future. It was during the Baltimore years that Tupac wrote his first rap calling himself MC Puddin' Pop. His first song was a parody of Old MacDonald Had a Farm. It was called Old King Kong Had a Mom. It was about U.S. race relations, about how King Kong represented slavery. And his hunters uh, represented white oppression. And King Kong grabbing that white woman represented the fear of the black man taking white women away from white men. And the name Puddin' Pop was a reference to Malcolm X. Malcolm X's speech about how Puddin' represented oppression. But Puddin' Pops represented freedom. And King Kong was mad because he missed his mom. And his mom represented Africa. And Africa represented Puddin'. And Puddin' represented Pops. And this whole Puddin' Pop shit represents nonsense that I make up from time to time. That was all bullshit. That was all bullshit. His first rap name was MC New York. Glad he didn't stick with that. Kind of, kind of generic. Kind of whack. Uh, his actual name way better. Tupac participated in high school rap competitions. Uh, Mining the drama of his past, he drew his first rhymes from an incident involving the shooting of a friend. Word got around; he had skills. He began to dream of someday landing a record deal, becoming re- you know recognized in the hip hop community. You know, him and about a million other teenagers are dreaming that. Uh, Tupac met two people at the Baltimore Drama School who would become his lifelong friends. Jada Pinkett, a.k.a. future Mrs. Will Smith, and a white guy uh, named John Cole, future uh, some white guy named John Cole. And he would later immortalize both friends in one of his many poems, which have all been published in a collection entitled The Rose That Grew From Concrete. Very critically acclaimed, by the way, and still selling, still selling a lot of copies. Pretty amazing how much content Tupac put out in such a short time and to do it all so young. Pretty sure I wrote a bit of poetry in high school. Very glad no one's ever found it. Again, unlike Christopher Wallace, uh, Tupac loved school. It was his great escape. You know, it was an escape from a tough, unstable home life, escape from the streets. He was happy at school. He didn't have to pretend to be, you know, tough. He didn't pretend to have to have a toughness he didn't feel. He was intellectually curious. He excelled in his classes, was getting better and better with his, his, you know, rhyming. He was a time sucker. Jada Pinkett would later recall how poor Tupac was around this time. She later explained, I mean, when I met Tupac, and this is not an exaggeration, he owned two pairs of pants and two sweaters. He slept on a mattress with no sheets when I went into his room, and it took me a long time to get into his house because he was embarrassed. He didn't know where his meals were coming from. Yeah, that is, uh, that is poor. Rather than hang around the apartment he was embarrassed by, Tupac stayed with his friend John Cole much of the time. Tupac had fun over John's with people streaming through, all, you know, through the place all the time. There was food, liquor, and weed. Uh, there were clothes, other amenities like sheets for beds that most people took for granted. You know, For Tupac, John's world was like falling into a gold mine. Eventually, John moved in with his older brother in Reservoir Hill just a mile away. It wasn't as nice as John's family home, but it was good enough, and Tupac didn't hesitate to join him since it was still far better than living at home. So Tupac, uh, he didn't take up much space in the two-bedroom apartment. He and John slept on different couches while John's brother and a friend named Richard took the two bedrooms. John and Tupac spent much time discussing everything from political systems to metaphysics, their bonds strengthened by John's dating Jada, and then suddenly it was over. Tupac arrived home at Reservoir Hill. Uh, One day he was told that he'd have to move out. Uh, John's brother moved into another building. John wasn't coming around anymore, and suddenly Tupac was staying in the apartment with John's brother's friend, Richard, who wasn't interested in having a high school student living with him. And then in the middle of his junior year, after Tupac had completed his college applications, his mom, Afini, got evicted from her apartment and decided to leave the state altogether. So since Tupac was underage, he couldn't stay at Richard's house without her consent. So then, and she didn't give it, so Tupac and Sec would have to leave Baltimore and go uh, stay with an old political friend of Afini's, an old Black Panther comrade, Asante, in Marin City, California. Having to leave BSA, devastated Tupac, changed the course of his life. When he climbed onto the bus that would take him to the West Coast, he carried $5 in his pocket and four chicken wings in a paper bag. Can you imagine that level of poverty? Heading out on a, a, a bus to take you across the entire country with $5 and four chicken wings. God, I hope that was exaggerated. Like, I, like, I've been poor here and there. I was poor here and there growing up, but I was like biggie poor. I was never four chicken wings and five bucks on a bus poor. Uh, 1988, Tupac and, uh, and Sec arrive in Marin City across the bay from Oakland. He was 17 years old. She's 13. Asante lived in a poor housing complex that was rife with crime. In fact, Marin's crime rate had soared to such levels that people pre- uh, referred to the community as the jungle at that time. Asante had agreed to house them, so Feeney sent the kids you know, ahead of her until she could come up with some money for a ticket of her own. I mean, again, super poor. And then one day she got a call from Asante saying the kids needed a new home. She didn't want to have them living there anymore. Uh, When Afini got to Marin City, Asante's nowhere to be found. Uh, Tupac and Sec are are with the neighbor. Afini has no idea what her kids, you know, or had no idea what her kids were enduring. I guess Asante was a raging alcoholic who often passed out on the floor, would just lay there sleeping for hours, didn't cook regular meals, never lost an opportunity to let the kids know their presence was a burden. So, you know, he's not enjoying California initially. And he's not – and Tupac is not well-liked in his new neighborhood either. It, it was no haven for a dude who had recently been studying creative arts. He earned a little money as a pizza delivery boy. You know, uh, tried to pre- – pizza delivery dude, uh, the source I, I, I read from said boy. It's kind of a weird. Uh, yeah, I think he was a dude. I think he was a dude. Tried to pretend not to care about books and formal education. Uh, I didn't fit in, Tupac later stated. I was the outsider. I dressed like a hippie. They teased me all the time. I couldn't play basketball. I didn't know who basketball players were. I was a target for street gangs. They used to jump me. I thought it was weird because I was writing poetry, and I hated myself. I used to keep it a secret. I was really a nerd. Well, he was a nerd who was going to turn that skill uh, soon into a lot of money. Uh, life got even worse when a fiend started using drugs again. Local rapper Manny Mann remembered that Tupac stayed with us for a little while because his sister was dating my brother. And that wasn't all that Tupac was doing. I was broke, nowhere to stay. I smoked weed. I hung out with drug dealers, pimps, and criminals. They were the only people who cared about me at that point. My mom was lost at that particular moment. She wasn't caring about herself. She was addicted to crack. She said, I want to give some of that crack. It was hard because she was my hero. I didn't have enough credits to graduate. I dropped out. I said, I got to get paid. I got to find a way to make a living. Started selling drugs for like two weeks. And the drug dealer said, give me my drugs back because I didn't know how to do it. Well, meanwhile, on the other side of the country in the late 80s, Christopher Wallace did know how to do it. He, he was great at selling drugs. In early 1988, 16-year-old Chris Wallace meets Jan Jackson. Not Janet. Jan. Future mother of his first child and on again, off again, love interest. Uh, The two teens fell hard for each other. Uh, She'd say he had the charisma of more than five men. Said he had a crazy amount of sex appeal for a big guy. Around this time, he's also getting pretty enamored with hip-hop, working on his rhymes whenever he's not busy on the street. Starts to get a reputation for someone who who has some real freestyle talent. He got real into Run run DMC and LL Cool J. Isn't that crazy, man? When Biggie Smalls was 16, he was listening to LL Cool J, who looks uh, 40 now. Uh, did you know actually that, that James Todd Smith, a.k.a. LL Cool J, is 68 years old? 68 years old! You know that? Well, he's, he's not. He's 50. But, he started putting out records when he was like 17, so it feels like he should be 68. He was, he was into Boogie Down Productions, Eric B. and Rakim, Ultra Magnetic MCs. His main influence was Big Daddy Kane. Big and his friends used to mess around at one of his friends' houses with a turntable, spitting rhymes for fun, challenging each other. How did he get the MC name of Biggie Smalls? Well, one day he and his teenage buddies were watching an old Bill Cosby, Sidney Poitier movie called Let's Do It Again in a Dazed In lobby in Raleigh, North Carolina. And one of the characters was named Biggie Smalls. Uh, Chris liked it because it was both gangster and funny. Now, why were they in Raleigh, North Carolina? Well, in a word, crack. They started taking bus, drop, uh, t- started taking bus trips to Raleigh uh, to sell coke and crack to college kids. Come get, come get some of my crack! In 1989, Wallace does not get arrested for drugs. He never would, but he does get uh, arrested. He gets uh, nabbed with an illegal gun. He's 17, gets five years probation for having a loaded, unregistered firearm in his possession. From 1990 to 92, Biggie and a New York buddy uh, rented a house in Raleigh, sold, uh, sold their crack down south. Uh, Chris kept selling crack and kept his rhyming as a hobby, writing rhymes in a notebook in his spare time. He was taking trips back to New York City on a regular basis. Get more of that crack! He's got got to fucking refuel. The hip-hop scene there was exploding. Old friends of his are getting minor record deals. They're getting meetings with A&R reps. Biggie doesn't try for any of that. He'd later say he was too worried about being rejected. Isn't that funny how people can be? He has no problem going down to North Carolina and sell some crack, but he he can't handle uh, possibly getting rejected uh, by a record label. So he just kept dealing drugs, kept practicing. And then he met the man who would take him under his wing, mentor him. A man who would change hip-hop forever. Robert Matthew Van Winkle, a.k.a. Vanilla Ice. Sing it with me. Dance. Bum rush to the speak of that booms. I'm killing your brain like a poisonous mushroom deadly. When I play a dope melody, anything less than the best is a felony. Love it or leave it. You better gain weight. You better hit bulls that The kid don't play. If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it. Ice, ice, baby. Boom, 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 ba da Come on now. Anyone who knows anything about hip hop knows that Biggie got 75% of his skills from Vanilla Ice and the other 25% from the Fat Boys. I eat, I need it, jelly roll. Well, it's good for the mind, body, and soul. I eat it, I need it, jelly roll. Who are the Fat Boys, you ask? Three gold records, motherfucker, that's who. One platinum record. One especially terrible movie called Disorderlies in 1987, where they work at a hospital and they're buffoons. But. Uh, the Fat Boys have nothing to do with today's show. Neither does Vanilla Ice. No, one day back in New York City, Chris was hanging out with a minor local DJ named 50 Grand. Uh, he and some other hustlers went to 50's house where he put Ultimate Breaks and Beats, Volume 24 on the term table, and Biggie grabbed the mic. And the room was mesmerized as he rapped like a man possessed. 50 Grand convinced him to record a tape with him in the house uh, just right away. And then late in September 1991, DJ 50 Grand brought the tape to DJ Mr. C., a man who just finished a tour with Big Daddy Kane. He was mesmerized when he heard it. A few weeks later, Mr. C and DJ 50 Grand told Biggie they were going to try and get him a record deal. Uh, I wonder if, if 50 Grand has anything to do with 50 Cent's name. Like maybe maybe 50 Cent wanted 50 Grand, but it was already taken. And then maybe there was some other local New York rapper named like 50 Bucks, some dude in Queens going by 50 Mil. And he's just like, ah, fuck it. I'll, I'll take 50 Cent then. Uh, well, Biggie and 50 Grand made a cleaner recording of that initial raw demo. And, uh, and they get the tape to Mateo uh, Capulongo, Capulongo uh, one of the editors at the Source magazine, the hip-hop magazine. Uh, Matt would say that Biggie was like Kane, reincarnated. He loved it immediately, and Biggie was featured in the popular unsigned hype column of the magazine. And That's a magazine, by the way. I had a subscription to, no joke, in 1994 and in 1995. And I'm guessing I've had the only Source magazine subscription in history that has ever been delivered to Reagan's Idaho. God, I felt cool getting a fresh copy of the source. And yes, I wore a giant starter jacket when I read it, Redskins. Yes, I sagged my jeans. Yes, I was so dope. And by dope, I mean not dope. Uh, 1993, uh, the new Biggie tape made its way to Sean Puffy Combs. P. Diddy. He wasn't known by P. Diddy yet, but he will be uh, – P. Diddy was then a young talent director at Uptown Records where he worked with groups like Heavy D and the Boys, Mary J. Blige. Around 93, he was already turning into a tastemaker – Already becoming Puff Daddy, Puff Diddy, Puff Digglesworth, Puff Ding Dong, Puff fucking Diddle in Your Niddle, Puff Magic Dragon. I I made up the last four or five of those. Uh, Puff was a pioneer of hip-hop soul, marrying hip-hop beats to R&B vocals. He just crafted a new Jodeci and Mary J. Blige albums, turned them into huge hits. You know, he's he's making a name for the label. He's killing it. He's turning Uptown into a major player, but he's not satisfied. He wants something more raw, something more real. And Then he hears that Biggie tape, and it was like nothing he had ever heard before. Legend has it he fucking whipped his dick out and masturbated for 17 minutes uh, in front of a room full of execs. He was like, "I, I like this, ah, I like it." He didn't do that, but he did love it, and he, and he knew what it, you know. He knew this was what he was looking for. Biggie was so sure, uh, or big, excuse me, Biggie was not so sure about Puff Daddy. He d- he didn't want to be on a label uh, right away. Uh, with acts like Heavy D and Jodeci, he didn't feel like they would understand him. But Puffy convinced him they could make an album by the summer, and they would let him do it you know, his way. And the signing process begins almost immediately, and the first track he records is a Mary J. Blige Real Love remix. Man, real love, I'm looking for some real love. Well, yeah, you know, so now fucking Biggie's on the radio. And then that summer, while waiting for the paperwork to finalize, you know, he's on the radio, but he's not getting paid. And he finds out that his on-again, off-again girlfriend, Jan, not Janet Jackson, is pregnant. So, uh, you know, he's got to make some money quick. And he's frustrated that his record deal hasn't been finalized, hasn't gotten past a lawyer so he can actually get paid. So he, heels, uh, he heads back to Raleigh to sell some more crack. Come get my crack! That's crazy, man. He's got a record deal waiting for him. He's got a song on the radio. He's going to sell some more crack. What about Pac, though? What's, what's going on with Pac in the late 80s? Back in 88, now on the West Coast. 17-year-old Tupac not selling crack, not selling drugs. Is crashing in different places while mom Afini searches for an actual place for them to live. She finally finds an apartment and instead of turning it into a home, she just turns it into a place where she can smoke some more crack. There's so much crack in this episode. Tupac also gaining a reputation as someone who's truly stunning on a microphone. Uh, his freestyle reputation made its way to a white music promoter named Lila or Leela, Leela, Leela Steinberg. And Leela be, uh, quickly becomes like a half mom, half manager person for Tupac, uh, gives him a stability he'd never had. And Tupac moves in with Leela and her family. Uh, she'd grown up as a social activist herself, and she saw something special in Pac. She was a stepdaughter of an L.A. criminal defense lawyer. She'd grown up in Watts in the 60s and 70s. She understood all about police brutality and racism, uh, the stuff that Tupac spoke about. Uh, Lila recalled that teenage Tupac truly believed he could change the world. And in a way, I, I guess he would go on to do that. And Leela introduced Tupac to up-and-coming Oakland hip-hop group, uh, a group you've hopefully heard of, Digital Underground. The Humpty Dance is your chance to do the hump. Oh, oh, do me, baby, do the Humpty Hump. I uh, do the Humpty Hump. Oh my God, I must listen to that song a million times going up. So much good music in this episode. Digital Underground, uh, that I am ruining for you, by the way, by singing Digital Underground, fronted by Gregory E. Shock G. Jacobs, the funky dude always wearing fur coats and that had that prosthetic nose. And Tupac started off as Shock G's roadie. Isn't that fucking crazy, man? It's good, man. Got to pay your dues, man. Starting off at the bottom, Shock G's roadie and then worked his way into being a backup dancer for Shock G, just like J-Lo, starting off as a dancer. 1990, The Humpty Dance comes out. It's the first song Tupac would uh, come out on stage and dance to. His hip-hop debut, The Humpty Dance comes a huge hit. Tupac goes on tour with the group, U.S., Japan. While on tour, his mom, Afini, scores a hit of her own. Actually, she scores several hits, uh, crack hits. Uh, she scores a lot of hits on the crack pipe. She was a multi-platinum smoking crack pipe artist at this point. She'd gotten clean for a little while. But then someone came by and was like, hey, uh, hey, I know you're clean right now, but what do you think about smoking some more crack? What do you think about smoking some more? That's crack! I got crack! And that's when she went back to smoking crack immediately. Uh, on the Digital Underground's next album, this is an EP release. Tupac makes his hip-hop album debut as a vocalist. He gets a solo spot on Same Song. That all around the world, same song. Oh. All around the world. And that would be, uh, you know, the, the very first track in the what would become the huge canon of Tupac's work. A soundtrack, man, that was the beginning of Pac. That song was used in 1991 on uh, the super weird but I like it movie have nothing but trouble with John Candy, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, Demi Moore. And then Tupac took the beginning of his music career uh, seriously, real seriously. He got into some fights with Shock G uh, during the This Is An EP release sessions. He would get fired. He would get rehired. He had to be physically restrained from attacking the sound man at one point because he didn't feel like the guy was working hard enough to produce the best possible sound for the recording. He was a hothead. But he was talented. He was talented enough for Shock G and the group to put up with it. Uh, Not only did they not let him go, they also helped him get his first apartment. Things were bad with mom at this time, which is not a surprise. Sounds like they kind of always are. Uh, His little sister, you know, uh, still just 13, living with a 22-year-old crack-selling boyfriend. That's not good. Mom's on crack. That's not good. In 1991, Tupac stepped on a crack and he broke his mom's back. So that's not good, right? A lot of crack problems, a lot of crack in his life. I uh, know, but in 1991, a demo tape Tupac made found its way to the head of the then struggling Interscope Records, the co owner of the label, Ted Field, a dude who's still around and is literally a billionaire. Uh, he let his 13 year old daughter, who was not living with a crack dealer, listen to it, and she fell in love with both the album and Tupac's beautiful eyes. And that was enough for Interscope to give him a record deal. And Tupac's debut album, Tupacalypse Now, was recorded. The first single, Trapped, released on September 25, 1991, not your typical gangster rap. The album dealt with social issues, imprisonment through poverty, police harassment. And then shortly after the album's release, Tupac experienced police brutality himself on October 17, 1991. He's jaywalking across an Oakland Street. On the way to the bank, two white police officers, Alexander Boyevich and Kevin Rogers, stopped him and asked for his ID. He produced it. They made fun of his name, Tupac. He demanded that they give him this ticket and let him go. Things got verbally heated. The officers threw Tupac on the ground, scratched up his face, gave him scars he'd carried the rest of his life, and choked him unconscious. Uh, the incident made headlines. Tupac would sue the police force, and they would settle with him out of court. November 21st, the full album of Tupacalypse Now is released through Interscope Records. It's raw, explosive. He's a man on fire. The album spoke to the truths of Pac's life. One song, Brenda's Got a Baby, was about a 12-year-old girl who had a baby cast out by her family, throws the baby in a dumpster. Hearing his cry, she retrieves it, but then she ends up working as a prostitute to try and uh, get uh, money to feed the baby, and she gets killed by a john. And you're left to wonder uh, what happened uh, to the baby. Rolling Stone would call it the feel-good song of the year. Uh, No, of course not. Uh, It's very, very, uh, yeah, he had some serious fucking heavy shit he would talk about. Uh, These type of songs endeared him to kids struggling across America. He wasn't just a hip-hop artist. He was a social activist. Right, uh, 1992. Tupac, now a hip hop star, appears in the movie Juice. He was great. I remember watching it. Uh, Juice was slang, uh, slang term for having power, influence, and respect in the hood. Tupac played a troubled teenager named Bishop, who lived with his grandma and dad. In one scene, P- Bishop is told by another character, Q, that he's crazy, and Bishop says, "You're right. I am crazy, but you know what? I don't give a fuck." That line seemed to have written to be written about Tupac himself, man. What was really crazy was that in less than three years, Tupac had gone from a homeless teen to a multi platinum selling hip hop artist and movie star. But not everybody's a fan. All right, an attorney for a 19 year old man named Ronald Ray Howard from Texas claimed music from Tupac Clips Now convinced his client to shoot a Texas state trooper in 1992. The accusation made Tupac an enemy of white suburban America and conservative political leaders. Vice President Dan Quayle said that Tupac's music had no place in our society. And, uh, and everybody stopped listening to it because you know what? Fucking Vice President Dan Quayle, that's a tastemaker right there. When that, when, that guy, when that guy would say something, you'd go, well, okay, all right, man. Quayle said it. Turn it off. No, no one fucking cared what Quayle said. Uh, possibly the least respected vice president in the history of politics, by the way. Uh, Tupac also became an enemy back in, <laughs> back in Oakland. Uh, the people still living in the neighborhood. He was, uh, you know, uh, describing his music. That were still living there. Uh, weren't happy about him describing it as a place uh, full of drugs, murder, and hopelessness. So as a, as a way, in way of uh, an apology, he agrees to perform at the Marin City Festival in 1992, and then things don't go well. Apology not accepted. A fight breaks out between Tupac's entourage and other concertgoers. A gun is fired in the crowd, and a six-year-old boy is shot in the head, and he's killed. And the crowd blames Tupac and his friends, and he has to hide under a car to hide from a mob of angry people until the police arrive and restore order. Uh, Tupac then tries to do something else good that uh, doesn't work out well. He launches a social reform banner under the Ill, uh, ill-named term, I would say, thug life. Which he said, you know, stood for as an acronym, the hate you give little infants fucks everyone. You know, which is cool, but most Americans just just see the word thug. Uh, Tupac also had this acronym uh, tattooed across his stomach around this time so people wouldn't forget where he came from. But again, when people see pictures of him, they don't think like, oh, he's standing up for kids. They just think, oh, oh he's a gangster. Uh, Tupac started gaining a reputation as a womanizer as well. Uh, of course he did. He's 20 years old. He's single. The women are hanging around backstage at concerts begging to have his baby. They hung around his Oakland apartment, uh, waiting for him to come home, offering him anything he wanted. Lucifina has surrounded him. Be gone, Lucifina. Or come to my hotel room for a little bit. Lucifina. Is that lingerie? Lucifina, you got another your clothes? Are you wearing a garter belt, Lucifina? Get on in here, Lucifina. Come on in. On uh, February first, nineteen ninety three, Tupac releases his second album, strictly for my N-I-G-G-A-Z. The source called it a combination of 60s black political thought, 90s urban reality. And the controversy around him deepens. One song on the album, I get around, I get around. ah, oh, such a good song. Was labeled uh, misogynistic and it was banned on various radio stations. Got Tupac in Trouble with a large uh, percentage of women. Uh, but not one to be easily labeled. Tupac also had the song Keep Your Head Up on the same record, a song acknowledging the struggle specific to black women, a very pro-woman song. Talked about how they were stepping outside in their cutest clothes even though they were dying inside. Also defended single moms living on government assistance. Song's video was dedicated to Latasha Harlins, a young black teen who had been shot to death in a grocery store by a Korean owner who thought she was trying to steal some orange juice. And the killer was convicted of voluntary manslaughter and didn't serve a single day in jail. March 13th, 1993, Tupac got into an altercation with a limo driver uh, while waiting to appear on In Living Color, my favorite sketch show as a kid. He was charged with assault, released on bail. Later that same month, Tupac took a swing in a Michigan rapper with a baseball bat, and Lansing spent 10 days in jail. Uh, and then on July 23rd, 1993, Poetic Justice is released, right? A John Singleton film starring Tupac as the love interest of Janet Jackson. Caused a lot of drama on set, but uh, director Singleton didn't seem to mind. He would say he was a wild cat, but he was 21 years old. He was making a movie with Janet Jackson, and three years previously, he'd been practically homeless. Of course he was going to act up. He was a kid. All the weed he can smoke. Every girl wants to sleep with him. Every cat wants to be cool with him. You think you wouldn't lose your mind? I fucking, I fucking love it when people are just honest about shit like that. You know, because so many people are like, hey, that's, there's no excuse for him acting up. There's no. Look at him being all promiscuous. There's no excuse. Shut the fuck up. He's 21. He's just been given the keys to everything. And he had nothing. Fuck, of course he's going to go bananas. Critics loved him in the movie. He was nominated for an NAACP award for leading man. Also in 1993, Tupac uh, heard a song called Party and Bullshit by a man uh, known as Biggie Smalls. Maybe you've heard of him in this episode so far. Uh, Then a relatively unknown artist. Meanwhile, while Tupac is rehearsing, you know, making out with Janet Jackson at her hottest, by the way. I had such a crush on her as a teen. Good God, making out with Janet Jackson on the beach or in a fucking movie? Biggie, he's selling some crack in North Carolina. Cook get my crack. So much crack in this suck. Mid-1993, Puffy had to track Chris down in Raleigh to convince him to finally sign the deal that would take him months to finalize. Stop selling crack. Come make a record. He assures him there would be plenty of money, you know, better money than crack money. At first, Biggie's hesitant. He's killing it in Raleigh. Still, uh, two days after Puff calls him, he gets on a train to head to New York City. He does want it. He gets a $125,000 budget from Uptown to make a record, and for the first time in his life, he focuses all his energy on hip-hop. And his first uh, solo track appeared on the hip-hop comedy Who's the Man? That track was the, uh, the one that Tupac heard and allegedly loved, Party and Bullshit. Shortly after the release of that song, everything almost ended before it began for Biggie. He and a friend were walking down Gates Avenue one night. Some cops strolled up, and Biggie had an unregistered gun on him, and the two guys started running, and then Biggie tossed the gun. The cops arrested them both and basically told them there's there's two of you but only one gun. Figure it out, you know, as in figure out who's going to take the fall. Well, Biggie already had one gun charge on his record that we talked about. When he got when he was 17 and the second meant serious prison time. You know, he's still on probation from that first one. So his friend D-Rock, even though the gun belonged to Biggie, takes the fall and, uh, and D-Rock goes to uh, get sentenced to four years in prison. Had D-Rock not taken the fall, Biggie, you know, himself goes to prison most likely for more than four years and when he comes out. Odds are the hip-hop world is not going to be waiting for him. There's, there's no Notorious B.I.G. Isn't it crazy how things work like that, you know? This, this one situation goes left instead of going right, and, and everything's changed and, and none of the big stuff happens. And then something else happens that almost destroys Biggie's career before it gets really started. Puffy gets fired from Uptown Records. More drama. In July 1993, just weeks before Wallace's daughter is born, Combs is fired from his job at Uptown. His success with Jodeci and Mary J. Blige made him arrogant. Didn't matter that he had the track record to back up his attitude. He's becoming a a little bit of a problem with the office, a little bit of a cancer in the clubhouse. Strutting around with a silver briefcase, showing off his sub-label logo to everybody, talking to anyone who would listen about bad boy. having his street team hit the pavement with flyers of of a photo of his godson in a diaper. One hand grabbing his nuts, with a caption announcing the next generation of bad motherfuckers. After he's canned, I think that's kind of hilarious. After he was canned, the label uh, goes through the roster uh, to see who they should, uh, you know, let go, who they should keep. And I find this next little uh, story hilarious. The president of MCA's secretary had gotten a copy of the lyrics to Biggie's uh, track "Dreams," a song that was also known as "Dreams of Fucking an R and B Bitch." <laughs> <laughs> How different are those two names? Should we call the song "Dreams" or should we call it "Dreams of Fucking an R&B Bitch"? Very, very different feel each title gives off. Uh, it was a little fantasy ditty about Biggie having sex with almost every male uh, major f- female singer in the business. You know, it was lyrics like Sade, ooh, I know that pussy's tight." Smack Tina Turner, give her flashbacks of Ike. <laughs> the secretary was horrified, and Biggie was dropped. God, it would, have been fun. it would have been fun to have been a fly on the wall as those record execs listen to that track, just, just being so shocked and offended, just deliciously uncomfortable. Well, to his credit, Combs has not lost interest in Biggie, not even a little bit. He spends the summer of 93 reassuring Biggie. He's going to make it all work, going to make it all better, going to get a new situation, and then he's fortunate enough to score a meeting with Clive Davis, the head of Arista Records. When the two men meet in the Arista offices, they're mutually impressed. Combs impressed with Davis's stature and smarts. Davis impressed with Combs' ambition and perspective. A deal is struck. David's is going to give Combs 1.5 mil in an advance and complete creative control. Combs immediately uses the money to buy back from Harold Her- the tracks that have been used, uh, already been recorded, excuse me, for Wallace's first album. And then they get back to work, you know, creating a hit record. Well, Wallace wanted to make, uh, you know, one of those kind of violent, darkly humorous records that like Snoop was making out west or that Scarface was making down south. My playing tricks on me. But he wanted to do it with some East Coast flavor from his perspective as a former dealer. He knew he could bring a new level of realism to his rhymes about the game. The album's rather morbid title, Ready to Die, was Puff's idea. And it was released on September 13, 1994 on Bad Boy Records and Arista Records. It would go gold in two months, platinum in just over a year. And it would go on to be one of the most critically acclaimed hip-hop albums of all time. It's at least a quadruple platinum, as of this recording. And the album released at a time when the West Coast, uh, West Coast hip-hop was prominent on U.S. charts. According to Rolling Stone, Almost single-handedly shifted the focus back to East Coast rap. Life is looking good, real good for Biggie now. He just got married on August 4th, 1994. Wallace marries uh, R&B singer Faith Evans after they met at a bad boy photo shoot. She quickly gets pregnant with his second child. Things are going pretty well, you know, uh, you know, for Biggie. And things are going uh, pretty well and horrific for Tupac in the early 90s. February 1st, 1993, Tupac's second studio album, Strictly for My N-I-G-G-A-Z. Released in February 1993, Uh, the album is is better than his debut, both critically and commercially. Debuts at number 24 on Billboard 200. Uh, generally considered uh, his breakout album, right? Spawn the Hits, Keep Your Head Up, and I Get Around. You talked about that a little bit ago. Uh, The the acronym stands for Never Ignant Getting Goals Accomplished. The Z makes it plural. And I'm sure he enjoyed making white kids across America nervous as to whether or not it was okay to uh, say the name of his album. Uh, Rolling Stone gave it five stars. He'd blown the fuck up. He's on top of the world. Late 1993, he forms his uh, side group, Thug Life, with a number of his friends, you know, and his new and his new stepbrother, Mopreem Shakur. The group released their only album, Thug Life Volume 1, on September 24th, 1994. It goes gold. Uh, it's, re- it's originally released by Shakur's label, Out of the Gutta Records. Got his own label now, making some of that label money. then Tupac briefly dated Madonna in 1993 after Rosie Perez introduced them at the Soul Train Awards in L.A. So life is good. But then things quickly take a turn for the worse. In November 1993, Shakur and some members of his entourage are charged with sexually assaulting a woman in a hotel room. Shakur denied the charges. According to Shakur, he had prior relations days earlier with the woman that were consensual. The woman did admit she performed oral sex on Shakur that visit. the uh, The complainant... Uh, she claimed a sexual assault after her second visit to Shakur's hotel room. She alleged that Shakur and his entourage raped her. The woman testified that she had consensual oral sex with Mr. Shakur at a nightclub, uh, actually four days earlier. But in the hotel room, she said Mr. Shakur wanted to share her with his friends who forced themselves on her. The defense said she had made the accusations out of jealousy when she saw Mr. Shakur with another woman. Well, according to the New York Times, as the victim addressed the court, Mr. Shakur stared intensely at her, then got up and apologized, but he also went on to say, I'm not apologizing for a crime, and he added, I hope in time you'll come forth and tell the truth. So, uh, you know, he said, she said, uh, classic situation, but he was found guilty. So there is that he was found guilty uh, of, you know, some sexual assault. Not good. Uh, March 23rd, 1994. His third film is released. Uh, above the Rim. Tupac stars as the film's villain. A drug dealer named Birdie. The film was a modest success. The soundtrack goes double platinum. Strangely, does not feature a Tupac track. Or Tupac track, excuse me. Does feature the classic Regulate by Warren G. A song that went as high as number two on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. A huge hit, man. Regulators, mount up. And... A song that samples, if you remember correctly, Michael motherfucking McDonald. Samples, I keep forgetting. Right? Check it out. Check it out. Listen, listen to uh, the Warren G. Regulators! Mount up. It was a clear black night, a clear white moon. Warren G was on the streets. Ah, uh, who doesn't recognize that little track? Now, now hear Michael McDonald's, I keep forgetting. Man, always, always uh, looking for an excuse to sneak in a little triple M. That was, that was a natural one. That was, an, even if you're sick of the Michael McDonalding, you gotta admit that one at least makes sense for the episode. Okay. Well, then on uh, the night of November 30th, 1994, the day before the verdict in his sexual abuse trial was to be announced, uh, Shakur experiences uh, even more negativity in his life. This one uh, not brought on by himself. This one brought on by some others. He's robbed and shot five times. Uh, by three men in the lobby of Quad recording studios in Manhattan. He'd been out in New York where he'd been, uh, you know, working on some filming, uh, working on that Above the Rim movie. Shakur stated that he believed the robbery was a setup for the attack, wondering why they would take jewelry and leave his Rolex watch. Uh, Shakur believed, uh, or excuse me, checked out of the Bellevue Hospital Center against doctor's orders only three hours after surgery. Man, the dude who was worried about not being tough as a kid, certainly tough now, Uh, shot five times, walks out of a hospital a few hours after surgery. In the days that followed, he entered the courthouse in a wheelchair—excuse me, in the day that followed, he entered the courthouse in a wheelchair, found guilty on, on three counts of molestation, found not guilty of six others, including sodomy, stemming from his 1993 arrest for the sexual assault. His road manager, Charles Fuller, also charged. In a 1995 interview with Vibe magazine, Shakur accused Sean Combs, Puffy Combs, Puff Daddy, Jimmy Henchman, Biggie, among others, of setting up the Quad Recording Studios attack. Uh, vibe would change the names of the accused assailants upon publication. Later evidence did not implicate Biggie in the studio assault. When Biggie's entourage went downstairs to check on the incident, Shakur was being taken out on a stretcher and he gave the finger to all those dudes. Uh, March 17, 2008, many years later, Chuck Phillips would write in the LA Times about an alleged order for the attack on Shakur. He said that Biggie and Puff Daddy were advised in advance of what was going to happen. Uh, he told us to MTV News. They did not know uh, the assailants were going to be shooting, though. In fact, they were going to be uh, supposedly no shooting. Uh, they were just going to give him a severe beating, but then Tupac pulled out a gun, and it went haywire. haywire. Excuse me. The article was retracted by the LA Times because it partially relied on FBI documents supplied by a man convicted of fraud, uh, which turned out to be forged. Interesting story, though. So uh, now this East Coast, West Coast, Biggie, Tupac feud, now it's on for real. So how did it start? Well, it did start with this incident, actually. Uh, Tupac and Biggie uh, were friends before this. They first encountered each other in 1993 in in Los Angeles. They're on business. The Brooklyn-bred rapper, Biggie, asked a local drug dealer to introduce him to Tupac, who invited Biggie and his party to his house. There he shared with them a big freezer. This is a quote, big freezer bag of the greenest vegetables I'd ever seen. And uh, then Tupac got him high, uh, pulled out a green army bag filled with handguns and machine guns. So now there we are in the backyard running around with guns just playing continues uh, Dan Smalls and the fader. Luckily, they were all unloaded. While we were running around, Pac then walks into the kitchen, starts cooking up for us, cooks some steaks. We were drinking, smoking. All of a sudden, Pac was like, yo, come get it. We go into the kitchen. He has uh, he, the steaks. He has french fries and bread, Kool-Aid. and We're just sitting there eating and drinking and laughing. And I guess that was the beginning of uh, Biggie and Pac's friendship. I fucking sounds fun. Uh, other than the, maybe running around with the guns. That sounds a little dangerous. Uh, <laughs> Tupac... Uh, I guess he you know, paid uh, Biggie a lot of special attention early on, grooming him, letting him perform at his concerts, open up. Biggie even told him uh, he wanted to be uh, part of another of – one of his affiliated groups, that that Thug Life group. Uh, but before Ready to Die came out, Biggie worried he, he could miss his shot uh, considering that his new label he was signed to, Bad Boy, owned by Sean Puffy Combs, hadn't really taken off yet. You know He's worried that things aren't happening quickly enough, and he's complaining, and he asked Tupac to take over as his manager, but Tupac doesn't want to. And he says, no, nah, I'm going to stay with Puff. He'll make you a star. And then the quad studio shootings happens. Uh, studio shooting happens, excuse me. And then rumors now are, are of, you know, maybe Biggie, maybe he felt slighted by Pac not wanting to work with him. Maybe he's jealous of his success. You know, these rumors start swirling around why Tupac is in jail on that sexual assault charge. You know, the Tupac's on top and, you know, Biggie at the very least is cool with him getting knocked off. And Tupac would say in an interview, he owed me more than to turn his head and act like he didn't know people were about to blow my fucking head off. And uh, even if Biggie hadn't set him up, he should at least have been able to find out who did it. And he would say, you don't know who shot me in your hometown? These guys are from your neighborhood? And you, you place uh, guys with uh, cement bumps that I don't feel comfortable repeating in this episode today. Uh, the way Tupac saw his own friend had betrayed him, a friend whom Tupac had helped acquire fame and fortune, and the feud was on. Biggie had disrespected him at the very least, if not outright set to kill him, and he was going to go on to release several diss tracks attacking Biggie, Jay-Z, Puff Daddy, other East Coast rappers, and subsequent releases, and he would just, like, wish death upon them in songs, talk about how corny and whack they were. Uh, February 7, 1995, Shakur is sentenced to uh, the one and a half to four and a half years in prison for the sexual assault. Uh, he'd been arrested six times, actually, since 1993, in incidents ranging from assault to a gunfight. Uh, all those previous charges eventually dropped. The judge described his crimes as an act of brutal violence against a helpless woman. He appeals his case, but because of his considerable legal fees, he can't raise the $1.4 million in bail. On uh, March of 1995, his third album, Me Against the World, was released uh, while he's in prison, and it's huge. Considered one of the greatest and most influential hip-hop albums of all time. The album sold 240,000 copies in its first week, setting a record for the highest first-week sales for a solo male rap artist at that time. It sold uh, over three and a half million copies in the U.S. alone as of 2011. Me Against the World won Best Rap Album at the 1996 Soul Train Music Awards. In October of 95, after Tupac had served nine months behind bars, Suge Knight, the CEO of Death Row Records, posted the $1.4 million bail pending the appeal of Tupac's uh, sexual assault conviction in exchange for Shakur releasing three albums under Death uh, under the Death Row label. Man, that is how you negotiate a record deal, I guess. Uh, do it when someone's in prison and wants to get out. And how the fuck did Tupac not have $1.4 million? He has four albums out. They're selling millions of copies. He's starred in a few movies. He should have made a killing already off of concerts. Man, record labels, man. So many of them. I guess they're fucking thieves. Or I guess maybe he was just blowing all of his money. Uh, While serving a sentence, he marries a girl he started dating the year before named Keisha Morris on April 4th, 1995. Uh, They'd be divorced by 1996. In 1994, Keisha Morris was 20. As fate would have it, she met and fell fell in love with Tupac at a club in Capitol, New York, Two met in uh, New York uh, in the summer of '94 while Keisha was attending John Jay College of Criminal Justice and working as a camp counselor. She was 20, he's 21, so they meet at this club while she's uh, in New York being a camp counselor, and he's a huge star. And uh, yeah, and then they get married when he's behind bars. It seemed like just kind of like young, kind of silly romance, and then the the union is, is annulled ten months later. So he doesn't he doesn't ever really have Tupac. It's interesting. He doesn't ever really have any significant romantic relationships. No kids. Uh, while in prison, Shakur becomes interested in philosophy, philosophy of war, military strategy by studying the works such as The Prince by Italian philosopher uh, Niccolo Machiavelli and The Art of War by Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu. Uh, the works inspired his pseudonym Machiavelli, uh, under which he released the album Don Illuminati*. Kill- <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little fun twist on *Kill Illuminati. the seven-day theory. The album presented a stark contrast to kind of some of his previous stuff. Uh, throughout the album, Shakur continues to focus on the themes of pain and aggression – And this album would be one of the most uh, emotionally uh, dark albums of his career. All Eyes on Me, the fourth studio album by Tupac, recorded in October 95, was released on February 13th, 96 by Suge Knight, Death Row Records, Interscope Records. Uh, The album is frequently recognized as one of the crowning achievements of 1990s rap music just in general. Steve Huey of AllMusic stated that it is easily the best production Tupac's ever had on record. It was certified five times platinum, just after, uh, after just two months of release. Nine times platinum by 1998. That's insane. Uh, this album was a huge success. The album featured the Billboard Hot 100 number uh, uh, single, How Do You Want It, California Love. Uh, it featured five singles in all, the most of any Tupac album. Moreover, All Eyes on Me, which was the only Death Row release to be distributed through Polygram by way of Island Records, made history as the first double-length hip-hop solo studio album. Uh, released for mass consumption it was issued on two compact discs four lps Uh, chart wise it was the second album actually from tupac to hit number one on billboard 200 top hip-hop album charts by the end of 96 the album had five million copies so five million in just uh what less than less than a year that's fucking bananas man there's a lot of sales um and then, and then the other one I mentioned, that Machiavelli album, The Seven Day Theory, his fifth and final studio album to be uh, you know, prepared for release while he was still alive, was completely finished in a total of just seven days during the month of August 1996, shortly before his death. Uh, the lyrics were written and recorded in three days. Mixing took an additional four days. And still, uh, MTV.com ranked The Seven Day Theory number nine on their greatest hip-hop albums of all time. That's some fucking talent, man. Love him or hate him, you can't deny that kind of talent. Just in a couple days, he could put out an album that, uh, you know, uh, a a major reviewer would consider one of the best (laughs) hip-hop albums of all time. It's fucking bananas. Despite the quick recording time, by the time it would be released, Tupac would be dead. Uh, Now back to just a little bit of Biggie because he doesn't have uh, much time left either. August 95, Wallace forms a protege group of his own, kind of like Tupac's Thug Life. It was called Junior Mafia. Mafia being an acronym, standing for Junior, uh, excuse me, uh, Masters at Finding Intelligent Attitudes. Okay, and it uh, feels a little forced. feel like they just picked Mafia, and they're like, ah, we got to fucking come up with something to make this work. Uh, masters, I like that. At what? Finding uh, attitudes, finding cool attitudes. Uh, what's an I word? Finding uh, infamous, no, that doesn't make sense, ignorant, that's the opposite. Uh, fuck it, intelligent. They released their debut album, Conspiracy. The group consisted of his friends from childhood, included rappers such as Lil' Kim, Lil' Cease, went on to have solo careers. The record went gold. Its singles, at Singles," "Players Anthem," and "Get Money," both featuring Wallace, went gold and platinum. Uh, Wallace continued to work with R&B artists, collaborating with R&B groups 112 on "Only You" and Total on "Can't See, Can't You See?" Both reaching the top twenty of the Hot 100. By the end of '95, Wallace was the top-selling male solo artist and rapper on the U.S. pop and R&B charts. In July 1995, he appeared on the cover of the Source with the caption of "The King of New York Takes Over." A reference to his Frank White alias from the 1990 film The King of New York. Uh, at the Source Awards in August 1995, he was named Best New Artist, Lyricist of the Year, Live Performer of the Year, Debut Album of the Year. At the Billboard Awards, he was Rap Artist of the Year. Man, this guy was just fucking selling crack. Like what? Two years before, he was be, okay, selling my crack, and now he's just nothing but awards. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, and you know, and during this you know year of his big success, that he had that big uh, feud with Tupac over that recording studio shooting. You know, uh, the Wallace and his entourage were in the same Manhattan-based recording studio at the time of the shooting. They denied the accusation. Wallace would say it just happened to be a coincidence that he was in the studio. He just – he couldn't really say who really had something to do with it at the time, so he just kind of leaned the blame on me. Uh, March 23rd, 1996, Wallace was arrested outside a Manhattan nightclub for chasing and threatening to kill two autograph seekers, uh, smashing the windows of their taxi cab and then pulling one of the fans out and punching them. I just uh, – that, that doesn't really fit today's narrative. I just thought it was funny. like only only like the hip hop world you hear about a dude just like beating the fuck out of two fans you know apparently they really wanted an autograph and he really didn't want to give them an autograph to the point that he decided to smash in their window and drag them out the car and punch them Uh, he pleaded guilty to second degree harassment was sentenced to 100 hours of community service in mid 96 he was arrested at his home in Teaneck, New Jersey for drugs and weapons possession charges so I guess he would be uh, arrested. Earlier, I think I said he did never receive uh, a bust for drugs. I was I was thinking when he was a dealer. But later, after he ironically gave it up, he did get a drug possession charge at least. In June 1996, Shakur releases Hit Him Up, a diss song in which he uh, claimed to have sex with Wallace's wife, then estranged Faith Evans. Uh, claimed that Wallace copied his style and his image. Faith would uh, deny later that she ever had sex with Tupac. She did claim that he asked her to give him a blowjob one time in a recording studio. And then, uh, six months later, the feud ends with Pac's death. And Biggie never really responded like, uh, to, to Tupac's disses. Not, not not really. Not like Tupac was. Claimed it wasn't his style to really get into it that way. Uh, September 7th, 1996. On that night, Shakur attends the Bruce Seldon versus Mike Tyson boxing match with Suge Knight at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Nevada. A fight that would last a total of one minute and 49 seconds. Uh, because Tyson, in 96, was fighting at a video game level. He was making other professional boxers look like me fighting against any professional boxer. After leaving the match, one of Knight's associates uh, spotted Orlando, Baby Lane Anderson, alleged Crips gang member from Compton, in the MGM Grand Lobby. Earlier that year, Anderson and a group of Crips had robbed uh, a member of Death Row's entourage in a Foot Locker store. Knight's associate told Shakur, and Shakur attacked Anderson along with his huge entourage. This fight was captured on a hotel uh, surveillance video. I've seen it numerous times. It's like 10 dudes against one. After the brawl, Shakur went with Knight to then uh, the, the then-death-row-owned Club 6662, now known as the Restaurant Club 7. At 11, 105 p.m., they were halted on Las Vegas Boulevard by Metro Bicycle Police for playing the car stereo too loudly, not having license plates, which were in the trunk of Knight's car. The party was released a few minutes later without incident, 11.10 p.m., While they were stopped at a red light at the intersection of Flamingo Road and Cobalt Lane in front of the Maxim Hotel, a vehicle occupied by two women pulls up on the left side. Shakur, standing up through the sunroof, exchanged words with the women, invited them to Club 662. At 11.15, a white four-door late-model Cadillac with unknown occupants pulls up to the sedan's right side. Someone inside rolls down a window and rapidly fires gunshots at Shakur. He's hit four times, twice in the chest, once in the arm, once in the thigh. One of the bullets went into his uh, right lung. Knight was hit himself in the head by bullet fragments. Chris Carroll, the first Las Vegas police officer to arrive on the scene, uh, was able to hear Shakur's last words, which were, Fuck you. Uh, Carroll reports that he refused to say another word to him or another officer. And then according to an interview with music video director Gobi, while at the hospital, Shakur received news from a death row marketing employee that shooters had received, excuse me, should receive news uh, from a death row marketing employee that the shooters had alleged, had called the record company and were going to come finish off Shakur. Uh, Gobi informed the Las Vegas police, but said the police claimed to be understaffed. No attackers came at the hospital. Uh, Shakur was heavily sedated, placed on life support machines, ultimately put ultimately put under a barbiturate induced coma. After repeatedly, I guess, trying to get out of bed, man, he's a tough motherfucker. Can't even speak. He all shot up when he's still trying to like pull himself out of bed. Uh, while the intensive care unit on the afternoon, uh, while in the intensive care unit on the afternoon of September 13th, 1996, Shakur died from internal bleeding. Doctors just couldn't stop some hemorrhaging. Uh, He was pronounced dead at 4.03 p.m., the official cause of death, uh, respiratory failure from uh, multiple gunshot wounds, and cardiopulmonary arrest from multiple gunshot wounds. Rumors of Wallace's involvement with Shakur's murder were reported almost immediately. A two-part series Chuck Phillips wrote for the LA Times in 2002 was called Who Killed Tupac Shakur? Based on police reports and multiple sources – uh, reported that the shooting was carried out by a Compton gang called the Southside Crips to avenge the beating of one of its members by Shakur a few hours earlier, that beating in the hotel lobby. And supposedly, uh, Wallace, you know, notorious B.I.G., paid for the gun. Well, Wallace's family publicly denied the report. Well, of course, guilty or innocent, they're going to deny it. Producing documents purporting to show that the rapper was in New York and New Jersey at the time. The New York Times called the documents inconclusive, stating, The pages purport to be three computer printouts from Daddy's uh, Puff Daddy's house, indicating that Wallace was in the studio recording a song called Nasty Boy on the night Shakur was shot. They indicate that Wallace wrote half the session, was in and out, sat around, and laid down uh, a reference vocal, the equivalent of a first take, but nothing indicates when the documents were created. And Lewis Alfred, the recording engineer listed on the sheet, said in the interview that he remembered recording the song with Wallace in a late night session, not during the day. He could not recall the date of the session, but said it was likely not the night Shakur was shot. We would have heard about it, Mr. Alfred said. Uh, moreover, Philip's article was based on multiple sources. As the assistant managing editor of the LA Times, Mark uh, Duvoisin, wrote, Philip's story has withstood all challenges to its accuracy and remains the definitive account of the Shakur slain. Uh, Faith Evans remembered Biggie calling her, though, the night of Shakur's death and crying to him from being in shock. She added, I think it's fair to say he was probably afraid, given everything that was going on at the time and all the hype that was put in on the so called beef, you know, that maybe he'd be next. Like, you know, he didn't really have it in his heart against, uh, to be against anybody. Wayne Barrow, Wallace's co-manager at the time, said Wallace was recording the song Nasty Girl Tonight. Shakur was shot. Shortly after Shakur's death, he met with Snoop Dogg, who claimed that Wallace played the song Somebody Gotta Die for him, in which Snoop Dogg was mentioned and declared he never hated Shakur. Uh, so that's Biggie's side of it. October 29, 1996, Faith Evans gives birth to Wallace's son, Christopher C.J. Wallace. During the recording sessions for his second album, tentatively named Life After Death, Till Death Do Us Part, later shortened to Life After Death, Wallace is involved in a car accident that shatters his left leg, temporarily temporarily confines him to a wheelchair. Injury forces him to use a cane. January 1997, Wallace ordered to pay $41,000 in damages following an incident involving a friend of a concert promoter who claimed Wallace and his entourage beat him following a dispute in May 95. February 97, Wallace travels to California to promote his upcoming album and record a music video for his lead single, Hypnotize. On March 5th, 1997, he gave a radio interview with the Doghouse and KYLD in San Francisco. In the interview, he stated that he had hired security since he feared for his safety. This was because he was a celebrity figure in general, not because he was a rapper. Life After Death is scheduled for release on March 25th, 1997, and then uh, uh, on March 8, 1997, he's presented an award. Uh, he presented an award to Tony Braxton at the 11th Annual Soul Train Music Awards in LA. Was booed by some of the audience after the ceremony. Wallace attended an after party hosted by Vibe Magazine and Quest Records at the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles. Other guests included Faith Evans, Sean Combs, members of the Bloods and Crips gangs. Later that night, 12.30 a.m., Wallace leaves the party with his entourage in two GMC Yukons. Travels in the front passenger seat alongside his associates, Damian D. Rock Butler, member of the dude who went to jail for him earlier. Junior Mafia member Lil Cease and driver Gregory G. Money Young. Uh, Combs, I love how even the driver has, uh, G-Money. Like, like, no, nobody in an entourage is just like, uh, who's that? That's G-Money. Uh, hmm That's Tiddlywinks. Yep. Uh, that's Bodacious. Uh-huh. That's, uh, lascivious. And, uh, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's Fred. That's Fred over there. No, you gotta have some kind of nickname. The two trucks are trailed by a Chevy Blazer carrying Bad Boys Director of Security by 12.45 a.m. The streets are crowded with people leaving the event. Wallace's truck stopped at a red light 50 yards from the museum black Chevy Impala, pulls up alongside Wallace's truck, driver of the Impala, an African-American male dressed in a blue suit and bow tie, rolls down his window, draws out a 9mm blue steel pistol, fires the GMC Suburban, four bullets hit Wallace in the chest, and he's pronounced dead at 1.15 a.m. at the Cedar sinai Medical Center. And now the feud is really over. Both Biggie and Tupac dead. Tupac dead at 25, Biggie dead at 24, both murders remain unsolved to this day, and their deaths take us out of this epic dual Time stuff timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. All right. So now the big question in this episode, who killed Tupac and Biggie? Uh, well, let's talk about some uh, po- uh, you know, popular suspects. One is Orlando Anderson. That's the suspect, uh, you know, the, that's the gangbanger Tupac fought with the night of his murder. That's the guy that that reporter, you know, I mentioned earlier, references is, you know, definitely the dude who he thinks did it. No one's going to be able to ask him that now, though, and find out for sure, because in 1998, he was killed in a gunfight in Compton, California. So we'll never know for sure if Biggie hired him, if Puff Daddy hired him, if he acted alone, if he even did it at all. Another popular theory is Suge Knight. There's theories that Suge Knight, CEO of Death Row Records, the man in the driver's seat when Tupac got shot, could have had something to do with uh, either death, actually, but more But more people tend to believe he had something to do with Tupac's death, and and they think that he wanted Tupac dead so he couldn't switch labels. Uh, and then he maybe had Biggie killed out of revenge for Tupac's murder, or that he had Biggie killed later to distract investigators from pointing the blame for Tupac's death in his direction. Uh, well, in January 2015, Knight was arrested after a hit-and-run in Los Angeles. He was charged with one count of murder, one count of attempted murder. Two counts hit and run, and if he's convicted, he'll face life in prison. His trial is actually currently underway for those charges. So, you know, it does look like he may have murder in his veins. Uh, there's also a possibility with Shug though, uh, that he himself was the target. Several sources have reported um, uh, that, you know, supposedly it's been known for many years among some people that Reggie White Jr., uh, his head of security, and uh, his ex-wife, uh, Sharitha, were behind the murder of Tupac and attempted murder of Knight. Wright Jr., uh, previously been linked to Pac's death by former LAPD, LAPD, Jesus, Detective Russell Poole, along with uh, Knight's ex-wife. However, Knight was the intended target of the shooting, as Poole believes the two conspired to murder him to gain control of death row records. So there's a lot of possibilities around Knight. I mean, I don't know. It seems kind of crazy to me that you would want to kill the guy making you a lot of money. Uh, There's the LAPD, as I kind of referenced there. This theory ties in with Suge Knight, LAPD officer Russell Poole. Uh, who was the lead investigator on Biggie's murder, accused other LAPD officers of having connections to death row records, and Shug Knight, who he thought planned Biggie's murder. He believed that Knight had Biggie murder as revenge for Tupac's death. He was ordered to stop his investigation, though, and, and, uh, and he had to retire in 1999. Now, was he ordered to stop because the LAPD was covering it up? He's getting too close to the truth? Or was he ordered to stop because he was a nut job chasing a fantastical notion? We'll never know. Uh, Poole died of a heart attack in August 2015 while he was discussing the case with L.A. County Sheriff Homicide Detectives. At the time, he's working on a book about the murders. I know that looks suspicious. Like, oh, man, he's working on his book, and then he dies. That's weird. Well, he, kind of, he was working on it for years. So uh, I think if it was – you know had really like scandalous information, he probably would have been killed quicker. But I don't know. I don't know. It's just me speculating. There's the FBI as a possible suspect. Other conspiracy theorists believe that the rapper, formerly known as Puff Daddy, uh, is actually the mastermind behind Biggie's murder. And the theory is uh, that the after seeing how well uh, Tupac's posthumous albums were doing for Death World Records, that Puff Daddy, or the, I guess the first one at that time, Puff Daddy wanted scales to skyrocket for Biggie's upcoming album, ironically named Life After Death. So he hired gang members to shoot Biggie. That seems pretty weak to me. And I know I mentioned FBI. And I guess that's just a, a very quick. Eh, people just think you know the FBI as far as like oh, maybe the FBI did it. Uh, you know I think the FBI the FBI one was based on. Um, you know, supposedly, like like crime, like like the big East Coast, West Coast, all these popular hip hop albums were creating all this kind of crime, and they thought if they just you know kill these guys, that maybe there'd be less people trying to emulate them and less crime. That just seems uh, super weak to me, which is, I guess, why I didn't put much of my notes. Um, and, and and again, the Puff Daddy seems very weak to me. It's like why why not make a ton more money? Uh, making a lot of albums with Biggie instead of just, you know, trying to make a bunch off of one or two. Diddy's former bodyguard uh, does believe uh, these allegations. According to a retired LAPD detective, Biggie's mother, Valletta Wallace, also believes that Puff Daddy and Suge Knight are somehow responsible for her son's murder. Uh, Valletta Wallace told the Daily Mail in the UK that the murder of her son hurts me every single day and that she has a very good idea about who killed him and they've done their investigation, but they refuse to move forward. Uh, It seems to me that this is one giant conspiracy. So, I know, it's crazy, it seems to me. There are people who believe it. Uh, Interesting that Valletta would say that. However, important to keep in mind that Valletta smoked a shit ton of crack. So much crack in her life. Not exactly the best for your brain. So, ah, I don't put a lot of stock in what she has to say. And just because, you know, she's Tupac's mom doesn't mean that she was actually that close to his wheelings and dealings. And his, you know, a lot of people hide shit from their mom. Then, of course, there's the most popular theory, and that's that they're still alive. That they, you know, they went the way of Elvis. Uh, what do I think? Honestly, I have no idea, but I, but I lean towards kind of random gang type violence. I mean, these guys were super, super popular dudes making a lot of money talking about being connected to the criminal underworld. They were immersed in a culture of drugs, gangs, violence, instead of separating themselves from the culture. Once they got the money to leave the streets, they stayed in, they stayed in a culture where young black men die all the time in shootings. And, And these weren't random young black men. They had huge targets on their backs. Well, you think killing Pac or Biggie wouldn't make a big name for yourself in the underworld? If you're some low-level, you know, crip or blood? You know, maybe Orlando Anderson did catch up with it and kill Pac. You know, he'd just been jumped in the lobby, been disrespected in front of a lot of people. And who knows how many other people, random people, that Tupac, you know, or Biggie had disrespected. Or or people who had felt disrespected. You know, people people who didn't hesitate to kill. I mean, they, hang around, they hung around a rough fucking crowd. You know, these guys were constantly rapping about that life. Money and fame does not protect you from the bullets of someone who just doesn't give a fuck about anything. Who doesn't care about killing us, nothing to lose. Or maybe Suge Knight did kill Pac. That's my other, that's my other possibility in my brain. Maybe Tupac really was considering leaving death row records, as some have speculated. And Suge knew he was sitting on a ton of recordings that he could keep for himself and that he could release after Pac's death. And he's able to keep all that money. But, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. That, that's that's uh, acting like, like he knew that was going to happen. That he knew... He would be martyred in in that way and would go on to sell that many records. And I don't think anybody could actually see that coming. Uh, But again, it's a possibility. Uh, And I am always open to conspiracy possibilities when there's a lot of money to be made behind them. Then they make sense to me. But that's just what I think. What do the idiots of the internet think? Idiots of the internet. 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 Today we go to a video posted by the YouTube channel called All Time Conspiracies – uh, because whenever a video is posted by a user with conspiracy in the title, you know that idiot gold awaits. There's going to be gold in here, so threads. Big, big nuggets. Idiot gold. The title of this video is, is Who Killed Tupac and Biggie? And let's see what the web has to say. User Lucky Luis comments with a popular conspiracy just saying, wrong, Tupac is in debt. Uh, and that that is how you really know someone's really made it like Elvis, uh, when people refuse to accept they're dead. All kinds of comments like that in the thread. So many people, like, adamantly argue with other users about how they have to still be alive. Uh, user Amruth Nirvani posts an obvious joke, and a good one in my opinion. Uh, he posts, Biggie killed Tupac, Tupac then killed Biggie, and then they later both went on to kill Michael Jackson. Who can't tell that that, that, that that's a joke? Who can't tell it's absurd to claim that person A killed person B- And then later, dead person B kills person A, and then both dead people, the dead person A and dead person B, go on to kill person C. Well, user chronic documentary Dre Game, can't understand, that's absurd. That's who. He posts, I'm Ruth Nirvani, shut the fuck up. Big never killed Pac, and they never killed Michael. His doctor did. Holy shit, you are dumb, Dre Game. He was so obviously joking. Uh, he who has a, serif- a horrific sense of humor. Sounds like a real fun guy to hang around, doesn't he? Old Dre game. I, I-, I would drive him crazy. Time suck would drive him mad. Shut the fuck up. There's no comic called Pooty and Juju. Shut the fuck up about Bojangles. Dogs can't time travel. Uh, user Nikki uh, Chryslam also makes an obvious joke, posting Sorry, Tupac is, al- Tupac is alive. I had a joint with him and listened to his new songs. And user Steve isn't having it. He simply posts, no. (laughs) I love that. I love that he felt it necessary to take the time to write a couple, even if it's just two letters. You know, a couple keystrokes. No, period. so three, four keystrokes. You know, actually five. You got to hit one. You got to hit one thing to to get on the comment. And then you got to type N. You got to type O. You got to type period. Then you got to hit send. He felt that was important to do that. You know, he must have been so, no, he didn't. No, you're lying. You didn't, you did not smoke weed with Pac. And Zombie punk didn't kill Michael Jackson. either. Stop i the lies. Well, I'm not sick of the lies. I like them. I like how they're riling up the idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. 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 All right, well, now you've heard from me. I know that was kind of a quick idiot segment, but it was, it was a long episode. It was a long timeline. It wore me out. And, uh, and, and I hope you had fun listening to today's episodes. Uh, I'm sure I'll hear from you. With some updates, I I, I have a feeling that the updates on this episode are going to be pretty fantastic. Uh, Now let's take another look back on what we've covered today with Biggie and Pac, with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one: Despite the whole West Coast East Coast hip hop feud that developed, both Tupac and Biggie were both from the East Coast. Tupac got going in Oakland, but he started playing with rap in Baltimore, and just like Biggie, he was originally from New York. Number two, both Biggie and Tupac were dead by the age of 25. Insane how much content they both produced in such a short amount of time, especially Tupac. Tupac would release five studio albums, not counting the Thug Life side project between 91 and 96. The first would go gold. The next four would go platinum. And then using unreleased tracks, you know, uh, five more albums of more original music would come out after he died. And the first four of those albums would go on to be platinum. And the last one would go gold. The dude really did get around. Number three, uh, Biggie's second album, released after he died, titled Life After Death, is still the fourth best-selling hip-hop album of all time. It sold over 10 million copies, and it came out just two weeks after he was killed. Number four, Biggie went from North Carolina crack dealer, come by my crack, to multi-platinum recording star in less than a year. A true inspiration for crack dealers everywhere. And number five, new information, Tupac Shakur, 15 years after his death, Tupac Shakur enshrined in the 2004 Guinness Book of World Records for being the highest-selling rap artist of all time. At that time, he had sold over, check this out, 67 million albums worldwide. He has now sold over 75 million albums. Maybe Shook Knight really did have him killed. Uh, according to random web list articles I'm skeptical to trust, he may uh, now have been uh, beaten, this record, by either Jay-Z or Eminem, or possibly both. But still, quite a legacy for a dude who was only active in the business, including the little Digital Underground cameo for about seven years. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Oh, Tupac and Biggie. Both been sucked. I pulled a double dick today. I mean, uh, double suck this week. The epitome of live fast and die young, huh? And now some tour dates. Some more tour dates. Uh, San Francisco Punchline tickets uh, on sale. They're on sale right now. April 25 uh, through 28. Scoop them up. One of my favorite clubs. The the club I recorded Chinese affectionate. Minneapolis, Brea, Cleveland, all coming up in March. Charlotte, Atlanta, Birmingham, Huntsville, Nashville, Houston, Dallas, Salt Lake City, San Francisco, all coming up in April. Uh, everything but San Francisco and Salt Lake City all in one big week. Early shows in Minneapolis, again, are already sold out. Tickets available for the late shows. Uh, More info, dancummins.tv. Check out the tour dates. Snatch up some tickets. Wear your Time Suck shirts or just show up. Have a great time. Uh, Thanks to Social Media Master, uh, Sydney Shives, events coordinator, and amazing patron saint of the At Secret Space Lizards, the person who set up the first Secret Space Lizard event. Uh, I hope, again, I'm recording this before. I hope she had a great time this weekend. Social media accounts, uh, manager Harmony VellaCamp. show notes, editor extraordinaire Jesse Dobner. All right, the entire Time Suck team, including interns Maddie Teeter, Deanna Marino, uh, Josh Krell working the boards. Uh, yeah, so much. Uh, so many people to thank. Uh, thanks for all the reviews. You know, you spread and the suck. Every review helps. It really, really does. Uh, it really keeps – the way the, the iTunes charts algorithm works, the more reviews come in, the more you're able to kind of move up the charts and uh, and the more you know attention you get from new listeners. And so I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for the emails. Again, sorry I can't get back to each and every one. Not enough hours in the day, but we get back to a lot. Uh, thanks to Jake Shepard, Scott Long, Sam Clark, Jose Del Rio, Maria Barber, Will Cohen, Sean Watterson. Others I'm sure I've missed for suggesting today's topic. Hope you enjoyed it. Next Monday on time Suck, we have a first. We have Norse Gods, and it's the first winner of a Space Lizard topic vote. So glad the topic list is working so well on the web, on the app now. Huge thanks to the BitElixir team for pushing out the most recent update uh, for the app, which has made it work perfectly for 99% of the users, including me. Working great on both my Android and my iPhones, and it's just going to keep getting better. We're just going to keep working on it. And now, time for some Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. Got some sweet ones coming in today. Got some sweet ones. makes me feel good. First one's coming in from Jeremiah Lassie. Uh, and Jeremiah writes, he says, dear bad mother sucker. Hey, Dan, first off, I just want to tell you how great discovering your podcast has been for me the last two months. I love to stand up early on, but sadly, being a millennial and not seeing any Netflix or HBO specials, I kind of lost track of you. I get it. I get it. Those motherfuckers. I wish they would have kept giving me more. Maybe I'll get more in the future. And then he says, my loss, though. I was lucky enough to be catching up on an episode of Your Mom's House that you did a guest spot on. I don't even – you know, I think they mentioned me. I don't even think I was – that's nice of them. I didn't even do that one. And when you described the show, I knew I had to check it out. Maybe you're thinking of Crabs Feast because I wasn't on Your Mom's House. But I started with the episode uh, Time Sucks Sucks itself to see what the show would be like. I was immediately hooked and blazed through every episode. I'm going to be 26 in March, and after four years not being able to find a teaching job, due to my lack of funds to get an unnecessary master's in education, I recently decided to stop having my soul crushed, Working retail jobs, because having a degree in social sciences and a minor in history aren't super marketable, unfortunately. I feel your pain. Surprising, I know. But I've decided to start my own small carpentry company, and it could be successful or a huge flop. But after spinning my wheels for four years, just hearing about your refusal to give in and give up to the struggles of how you still push through the rejection and constant fuckery that is show business, you have given me inspiration to follow this dream wherever it takes me. I just want to let you know how much this podcast has meant to me, and I appreciate your dedication and thirst for knowledge. I'll be trying my hardest to come see you when you head down here to Huntsville, but money's tight, so if I can't, then hopefully the show's amazing, and you can come back to this neck of the woods. Hell yes, brother. Sorry for the long-ass email, and I have no illusions that a father and a husband that also travels all over the country will see this. I did. But I felt like I needed to tell you to keep on sucking, because what you're doing matters more than you know. And on the off chance you do read this, I'd be glad to assist with any research you might need. History is my first love, and I've got a lot more free time and more dissertation research than I know what to do with. I'd be happy to put my degree to some use. With your family and all those other time suckers who've been struggling or dealing with, uh, you know, Myers— Oh, no, wish you and your family and all those other time suckers who've been dealing with uh, the mire of shit that's going on right now in the world. Nothing but love. Keep on fighting hate, violence, and ignorance, and always stay curious. Your humble suck puppet, Jeremiah. Well, thank you, Jeremiah. Man, that pumped me up, man. That was a great message. And um, I really, I really appreciate that. I appreciate that very, very much. And uh, yeah, man, hit me up at Dan at DanCummins.tv and uh, yeah, hopefully we can get some research stuff going. I Just started working with a a few more people. I know I have more of you to get back uh, to that have hit me up. Uh, I just, yeah, I just grab little minutes here and there and uh, and I appreciate the offer and I'm so glad I was able to inspire you, man. Yeah, you just got to keep going, man. It took me a long time to kind of realize that, you know, that uh, I was waiting for the world just to hand me shit and I was, eventually I finally reached that point of just like, no, fuck it, man. I was going to bust my ass and try and, you know, create it on my own. And luckily you guys have allowed me to do that. Uh, Another one from uh, Damon Velez comes in saying, Mr. Cummins, I would normally say master sucker, but I feel like I should be more serious. I've written to you in the past praising the work you put into your podcast. Now I write you about something more important. I want to thank you for uh, being my go-to podcast for grinding out work. I started listening to you about the same time I started working for a particular soda company. Now, not even a year later, I have moved up from part-time to being the fucking district supervisor for my company. Fuck yeah. I just received the news and I'm filled with uh, so much joy and I owe you quite a lot. Your podcast made it possible to push through every single hour of grueling, backbreaking work, showing my seniors that I could work just as hard, if not harder than they could. Your podcast has kept me intrigued and my mind off of any negativity at work. So thank you so much. Starting next month, I'll be the youngest district supervisor they've had at 21 and I owe a good portion of that credit to you. Thank you, Mr. Cummins. From the bottom of my heart, now I plan not only to set my sights even higher, but to blow everyone's expectations of me. Uh, away, Yeah, I'll be forever grateful. I understand how busy all your work must be, but I hope you take the time to read this because I couldn't have dealt with the shit I had at work if not for your humor. So keep on sucking and making other people's lives just as amazing as you've helped make mine. Oh, man. Well, you know what? Fuck you, dude. Fuck you. Why the... No, just kidding. That would be the worst reaction to that ever. Just like if I just had like a weird breakdown right there and I thought somehow that was negative. Who the fuck are you to... Oh, wait. That was super positive. Never mind. <laughs> No, man, I'm so honored. I'm so honored that I was able to inspire you, uh, Damon, man. I'm so, congratulations on kicking so much ass at work. It makes me feel so good that the, the weird shit I do could have some small part in that. And uh, yeah, man, just keep pushing it forward, man. You'll inspire uh, other people by your hard work. I, I love it. I love it. I love the community of Time Suck. It's fucking cults and Curious kicking ass, kicking some ass. All right, one more. One more from Johan Rodriguez. Dear Dr. Reverend Cummins, keeper of the 8th seal of Nimrod. Oh, I like that. I was introduced to your podcast last year by my brother, and I fell in love with it instantly. Now my fiance and other members of my family have become followers and suck. The family that sucks together stays together. I I added that part. I love the way you present information in a very approachable way and how open-minded you are to suggestions and points of views. It's even encouraged me to see things from other angles and broaden my horizon on various topics. I'm a band director out in Texas, Tejas, and your podcast is my go-to listen on my commutes to work. With all that is going on, I'd love for you to do a gun control suck and talk about the recent suggestions by politicians of Army teachers. Seriously, keep doing what you do. Support for you, uh, Bojangles Rodriguez. Yes, Johan, gun control coming soon. Uh, I'm getting so many great emails from various time suckers with various points of view regarding that issue. And uh, I feel like now, like when I'm able to get to that episode and do it justice, it's going to be a good one. Thanks to you guys all being so fucking awesome when it comes to informing me and helping me change my opinions and helping me rethink my beliefs. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you all for sending those in. Thanks for these Time Sucker updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, everybody. See some of you in Minneapolis. Uh, Do not start a hip-hop disc feud with anyone. Maybe don't sign any prison record deals uh, with Death Row Records. And keep on sucking. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49, perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba 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 In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years,